Greetings friends. How do the Olympic Games work? How does a thing so complex, so high pressure, so loaded with potential for international dispute and intercultural division, how does such a thing work and work generally so well? Welcome to the Intercultural Toolbox podcast. This is episode five. My guest today is an interculturalist who's been working on multiple Olympic programs and who has a personal cultural connection to the current Olympic host city and the next Olympic host city. Now you've probably heard sports used as a metaphor for business many times before. It's an easy one. The brilliant coach, the attention to excellence, the hard work, the optimizing of performance, the possibility of success. But there were no easy sports metaphors in this podcast. Instead, we are lifting the lid on the Olympic organization and looking into the engine room of this vast Olympic machine and with some real insider insight. Maybe after all, the Olympics are not so different from other kinds of international event or cross-border organization that perhaps you are working on. The culture count for this episode has Japan naturally mentioned more than any other culture, but we also have Africa, Germany, Switzerland, Mongolia mentioned at least once, Spain, USA come up a couple of times, Brazil, France and Senegal all at least three times. I learned a lot from this conversation and it is my pleasure to introduce to you, without further ado, an interculturalist whom I admire very much indeed, Agnès Domer. Agnès Domer, welcome to the Intercultural Toolbox podcast. Hi Richard, and thanks for having me today. It's brilliant to have you here. We're recording this on, I guess we call it the first day of full competitive action in the Tokyo Olympics. So it's a very big day. The whole world uh, is um, is looking uh, towards Tokyo. It's a kind of unifying day. It's a brilliant moment for everyone who's been involved in in that whole process. And I wanted to talk to you because I think you have a lot of insights to bring to a conversation about how an event like that can even happen, what are the mechanics and, and so forth. So this is the topic I'd love to dive into with you today. But first, maybe a little bit about you. You're an interculturalist. I know that. You know all of the the main ideas in uh, in in the intercultural field, um, the the dimensions and the um, you know the developmental approach, uh, intercultural intelligence, um, CQ. In fact, I think you're the only um, interculturalist I know who has CQ in her name. Uh, so that's um, something that makes you, you special. But there are many other ways in which you you are special. I know you actually. I got to know you when you were based in Japan, which is not so long ago, which is where the Olympics are happening, Mm -hmm. now based in France, which is where the next Olympics are happening. And today you're in neither of those places. Um, I believe you're in Senegal in Dakar. Is Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. And actually, Dakar will be also welcoming the Games, the Youth Olympic Games, 
uh, the summer ones actually it was supposed to take place in 2022 and now it's been postponed to 2026 so again i'm in another um olympic city actually yes so as you said um i lived in japan actually i lived twice in japan i also lived in brazil and that's how um I started to be in contact with the Olympic and Paralympic world because I worked for uh, Rio 2016 and I was in charge of Africa, actually, um, about uh, actually the um, sports entries and the athletes. But I also lived in Mongolia, I lived in Spain, I lived in the United States. Um, and so, as you said, I'm now back to Paris. So um, lots of things to, to to answer your question how intercultural enter into my life basically it started 20 21 year ago 21 years ago when i first lived in japan um at that time i was working for a japanese company and i was young i was a female working for a very traditional company and actually it it has been a big challenge and uh it was so complicated that I started to look on the internet and find to try to find, you know, tips to adapt myself to the uh, Japanese management style. And then, you know, I read a lot and I, I, this idea of writing a book about how to work with Japanese came up and I started to interview people and, and this is how the intercultural journey started basically. And then I, you know, moved to these different countries. So, yeah, long journey. Absolutely. And what's happened since then? Uh, we'll, we'll hear more about how um, the Olympics has remained a part of your, uh, of your life for, for many years. But um, what else have you been doing in the intercultural field since those early days? Well, so I, at the very beginning, I mostly focused about Japan and actually was you know, for me to find way to work with my colleagues and to adapt myself. As I said, it was a very traditional company, which means that when I came to that company, they say my the, the boss of the company told me, oh, you have a new family now in Japan and and your line manager is your dad and you, your, your senior colleague is like your aunt. So it, it was very strange because I really felt that they felt that they were somehow my family. And I had to have dinner with my uh, with my boss on Saturday night. And so it's uh, it was very traditional style. But interestingly, somehow it seems that uh, I mean, it's it still exists in some companies in Japan. And I think this is the big intercultural challenge for, for Japan is uh, to, to make the, the man, man, management style evolve a little bit, you know. It's still quite traditional, actually. Yeah. Try and bring us up to date with uh, with what you're doing now. You Are, are you in coaching? Are, are you more of a consultant? How would you describe your current work in the intercultural field? Well, so actually, so I've been delivering training about the countries that I know and basically the countries where I lived and worked. So like Japan and Brazil and France. What I'm also doing is I'm um, coaching and I'm particularly interested in coaching uh, trailing spouse. Um, because I had this experience in, in Spain and I was living in Galicia which is actually 
close to Portugal. And I was there for two years with very little job opportunity. And, and it was hard to see what this experience could bring to me. And what I'm trying to do with my coaching experience is um, to help people that are um, like, let's say, professional expats to make them feel that wherever you're going, there is always something to learn about yourself and to learn about the new culture you're in. So even though you're in the smallest city in the world where you think there's no job for you, nothing to do, there's always um, something to learn about yourself or about the new culture. So this is the type of things that I'm offering um, in my coaching, actually. So I'm doing a little bit of coaching and I'm also delivering training as well. I love that idea of the uh, professional expat. So, you know, you take a serious approach to being successful in, in that role. So this sounds very powerful. Uh, excellent. Okay, so um, here we are. It's the start of an amazing summer of Olympics and, and Paralympic action. Um, and uh, it's something that I've, I've said you, you know a lot about, I know very little about. So tell me more of what what is the landscape of the olympics when this amazing thing happens all of these uh, thousands of athletes and um hundreds of uh, national uh, uh, olympic organizations or sports bodies come together and have to make this thing work um how, who are the players you know how, what are the mechanics of that what what is the landscape of an, a big olympics event so actually uh, to be to be honest, there's always a confusion between IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee, and uh, IPC, International Paralympic Committee. So there's those two bodies, IOC and IPC, and there's the host city organizing committee. So right now it's Tokyo 2020. So these are very different entities. So to make it simple, I would say like IOC is like the guardian of the Olympic Games and like they give temporarily like a franchise to a city which is supposed to organize the games. So they have very specific requirements, they have specification and the host city has to uh, meet these requirements. So this is for IOC and IPC and then you have along among all the stakeholders you have many actually. So you have of course you have the athletes so it's almost 11,000 for the Olympic Games and it's around 4,000 for the Paralympic Games. You have the national committees, you have Olympic committees and Paralympic committees. So let's say like the French National Olympic Committee, for example. You have all the international federation for the sports. So I would say like for in the Olympic field, it's mostly in Switzerland, in Lausanne, close to IOC, basically. And then you have all the worldwide Olympic and Paralympic partners. And I would say that the, the main partners are basically the broadcasters. And I would say in particular NBC. So this is also the reason why some of the uh, competition are scheduled on particular time so that people in the United States can see on prime time the competition they want. So it's the, the time for the competition is is really think in terms of what time would that be in, in the States, you know, as I said, again, NBC, NBC is one of the main, main sponsors. So 
Um, IOC is based in Switzerland, in, in Lausanne, as I said, and IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, is in Germany, actually. Um, so that's that's the, the world, basically, the whole Olympic and Paralympic movement. So it's basically, it's a lot, a lot of people. But what's so specific, I would say, about the Olympic is, um, and Paralympic as well, is like, the idea is like, every country should be represented so this is why you have what they call the universality slots, which means that if ever a country didn't manage to have any athletes, um, um, I mean, to that any no athletes made the qualification, in this case, they will receive universality slots so that the country can be represented. So basically you have all the country there. So that's, that what makes this event so specific so particular the whole world is here yeah it's an amazing experiment in humanity and it seems to work incredibly every time around it's, it's interesting that you you say that this there's a kind you can think of it as a franchise model so the um the franchise is currently held by tokyo and will be passing to paris i guess this means that Exactly. A, a lot of um, the uh, the tacit knowledge of an organization, a traditional organization, builds up knowledge over years and eventually decades, maybe even longer. Um, with the Olympics, a, a, a host city has to get up to speed extremely fast within a few years to, to run an event like that, obviously with, with help from uh, the IOC and IPC. Um, but that's a huge, huge challenge. So, um, and as you say, the whole world is there. It's un, it's in the spotlight. Everyone's watching. There's billions of uh, dollars, euros, whatever, riding on that. Um, so it, it's not surprising to me that there's a role for interculturalists somewhere in this huge complex coming together. Um, but why does the internet, the... Um, well, the international Olympics movement, the, the Paralympics, the Olympics, why does it need interculturalists? Well, I would say for, for ma many, many reasons. Um, of course, you can easily guess that with all these people coming from all the world, gathering and working closely together under such, an, such great pressure, of course, it can be complicated. So, um, of course, there, there, is, there are cultural issues before and during the games. So I guess that the cultural interculturalists can help, um, you know, for people to better understand each other and to work more efficiently together. Um, so that's, that's one thing I would say that to avoid, to prevent um, major cultural issues. And, um, but on the other hand, I mean, of course, there's a lot of cultural challenges, I would say, but it's not only about issue as well. I think that the games are an amazing chance, an amazing opportunity uh, for people to learn about each other's and also to learn about themselves. And I think that um, why, how the interculturalists can help is 
because I think that there's this idea, and I, I've I've seen that, I've he, I've heard that several times, even in the Olympic movement. There's always this idea that because you're exposed to another culture, you will learn about the culture. Yes, you will definitely learn, but sometimes what you learn can remain, I would say, a little bit superficial, a little bit shallow. You know, it's not because you're traveling to a country that you will deeply learn about the people. You might learn, of course, what the name of the main dish, but would you learn about how people consider time, family, death and life and things like this? So I think as interculturalists, what what we could help with is um, help people to understand um, and to, to raise their awareness about what they can learn from that specific experience. And I think this is, that this is the role that we can play because um, some people can very naturally learn just being exposed to another culture. But I think there's a, also a great number of people that needs to be helped, to be questioned, to be challenged but also to be reassured because somehow um, being exposed to another culture can be, you know, um, a little bit stressful because, you know, things are different and people are thinking and behaving in, in a strange way. So you also need to be, you know, that someone can hold your hand and, and tell you it's okay. Don't, don't be scared. You, you can, you know, work further on that path. So I think, this is the kind of, of role that we can play. And I think then, then you know, this is a, and I think this should be the legacy for the games. I mean, not only for, for Tokyo, but I think in general, I think that the Olympic and Paralympic games should be a fantastic opportunity for the host city and the whole country that is welcoming the, the, the games. I think this should be a legacy. And it's, I think the, this idea of uh, human legacy is more and more in the air, you know, in the Olympic and Paralympic uh, movement. I, I, I love that idea that um, uh, traditionally when I've heard discussion of legacy, I think of, you know, the stadiums, the buildings, the athletes' villages mm -hmm, that get mm -hmm. created for these events and how are they going to be used? Is it going to help, you know, young young people get into sports and, and this kind of thing? But they you're right. There's a there's a human legacy and an intercultural legacy, and it it, it could potentially change the self image of a city and more broadly a country if things go well. You know, and not all of these um, countries are have been so com comfortable and confident with um, intercultural interactions. They haven't ha always been good experiences, but uh, the you know having the Olympics or Paralympics there can change that entirely so that's very exciting it you, you've convinced me okay there's a role for interculturalists in in, in this whole thing and i, I would say, but I, I would ask something else it's like there's an increasingly important talking point about the legacy of the games because of course the games cost money though i mean the the sponsors and the, it's it's most of the games are, are paid by you know the, the the sponsors and and things like this it's not directly the city which is paying for the games but still i mean the the, the olympic and paralympic legacies as a is a, an important talking point and i think that um the human legacy should be really take 
should be taken into consideration. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's the reason why, I mean, when I was living in Japan, um, I mean, I was three years, I arrived in Japan three years before the games and, and I tried very hard uh, to pass on this message to the organizing committee that one of the legacy of the, the uh, Tokyo 2020 games should be, you know, the, the uh, intercultural awareness, particularly because Japan as I mean, it's a cliche about Japan, but somehow this is true. Uh, Japan is is uh, has been a um, how can I say has this challenge coming in because the as as you know the, the the population is growing older and in the next decades the country will have to welcome more and more foreigners so it's a challenge for the country you know to where to raise uh, the intercultural awareness of its population you know so I think. This this could be one of the I mean this should have been one of the main legacy of this game I would say. Excellent. There's there's plenty of work to be done uh, there and uh, and a, and a huge prize um, for the city that gets it right and actually does develop the intercultural competence of its people. We we know that 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 can help raise um, uh, success in in life in people's. Uh, happiness and effectiveness at work and so forth so this is an, an almost unmeasurable but important part of um, the legacy we're aiming for but can you say more about the the roles that you've had you've mentioned the rio olympics and uh, and you know conversations around the um the current tokyo olympics uh, what what have you been doing with uh, olympic um organizing committees and so forth um so far in your work well, so I work for, um, as I said previously, I work for Rio 2016. So I was in, in charge of um, of uh, Africa and uh, actually the, uh, in, I mean, I was dealing with the um, Olympic and Paralympic committees. So I have the chance to, you know, have a, uh, several meetings in, in Africa and, and travel in many countries and meet many people. Very, very interesting experience. Uh, and yes, can you say, and, what, what, uh, what, does so, that, what does that mean, in charge of Africa? What kind of operations uh, or um, processes were you working Well, on? so basically my, my department was in charge of uh, the inscriptions of the athletes. So basically I was in contact i mean of course i had a team there's 54 countries in africa as you know so it was a, a lot of work to do but um we i had a, a team and we were um, in contact with the committees and with the international federation to basically register um the the athletes and also i was in contact close contact with the international federation just to make sure that the you know the athletes were registered and uh, no doping issues and this this mm -hmm. kind of things. So so I, I work closely with the the fifty four countries, and so that was in Rio and um, in in Tokyo. As I said, I, I had uh, several uh, meetings. You know, talking about you know what could be the uh, the the as we previously discussed it about the the human legacy of intercultural. Uh, training for example for the staff and for the volunteers and also 
there's always every organizing committee as an education program for the, the children. And so, you know, we, we exchange ideas about how intercultural topics could be in the uh, education program. But what is very specific about Japan is um, the intercultural topic is not, I would say, as well known as in Europe or as in United States, I would say. Um, so it, the, the project didn't really went through, um, though there was lots of initiative about, you know, um, uh, intercultural trainings in, in topic. But um, so that this is what I did with, uh, I would try to do with, uh, with Tokyo. And uh, lately I worked with Paris 2024 so I delivered training for the staff for about more than a year and more intensively recently um, for, for several reasons. First of all, um, as you said, there's this the big challenge of transfer of knowledge between one, an or, one organizing committee to another. So um, there's a program of observation, which means that some people from Paris 2024 uh, and some of them went and are still now in Tokyo just to observe how you how are you doing the games basically. So this observation programs means that you have people from Paris 2024 and people from tw Tokyo 2020 working closely together. So I delivered training about um, Japan and how to work with Japanese for those people from Paris 2024 that are part of the observation program. So that was one of the job I did for them. But also um, during the closing ceremony, there's a um, basically, you might remember that during the closing ceremony in Rio 2016, do you remember Shinzo Abe maybe? Oh uh, yeah, popped out of do the can. Uh, he was Super Mario or something, was that right? Exactly, exactly. That's very so surprising kind of During the, the way closing ceremony, so during the closing ceremony of one games, you always have 15 minutes that are given to the next organizing committee, you know, to introduce themselves and, you know, just to tell, okay, here we are, we are the next, next games. So for the team of Paris 2024, who are part of this, uh, who will be, you know, organizing those 15 minutes during the closing ceremony, I also delivered training as well. Um, and during the closing ceremony, um, there is also a moment where the governor of Tokyo, um, Ms. Koike, she will be giving the flag, the Olympic flag, to IOC president, Thomas Bach, who will be then giving this flag to uh, Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris. And she will be like this waving eight times the IOC flags. So there's you know, this reference to the next organizing um, committee during the closing ceremony, basically. So this is the reason why there was about a little bit more than 100, less than between 100 and 150 people from Paris 2024 that will be traveling to Tokyo and are currently in Tokyo observing or being part of the um, closing ceremony, basically. 
So this is what I did for Paris 2024. F fabulous. Um, you, you've got a real insider's view on this whole process and, uh, and from many now um, major uh, Olympic events. So I, I'm talking to the right person. I know that. Um, uh, and yes, um, what kind of issues um, would it be right to expect around the Tokyo Olympics and the um, Paris Olympics from an interculturalist point of view? Are there particular cultural um, phenomena that uh, that those the people involved in those events should be preparing for that an interculturalist would want to sit down and and, and talk with them about to coach them on and so forth. Well, I think the biggest challenge is probably, I mean, specifically talking about uh, the French and the Japanese people. I would say, like, the biggest challenge is whenever in Japan, when, when you're asking someone to do something, probably very quickly the person would like to know um, how she or he is supposed to do that. So the question would be how. But in France... And this is how we've been raised. Uh, we always want to know why, why, why I'm doing this, why there's this rule. So I think the biggest challenge was this, you know, how person meeting this why person and those two person having a conversation. So I think that was probably the, the main challenge, I would say. But the interesting thing as well is this is something I was thinking about because I I used to live in in Brazil and being I was part of the Rio 2016 games. If there was a country that should have been in charge of the games with the pandemic, I would have said that Brazil would have been the best choice because that's the country where, in the end, people will always find a solution. They have a saying in Brazil in in, in Portuguese. You sing, vai dar certo. There's always a, a way to handle things, a jitinho, a solution at the very last minute. So I think Brazil would have been the best country to have the games right now. But on the on, on the opposite side, Japan is the country where people need to think about all the options to plan everything. But of course, nobody could have, have imagined that would have a pandemic like the COVID that we're having now. So I think it's it's the biggest challenge for Japan is is to handle a crisis like this where they have to, you know, imagine solutions on a day-to-day -day basis, basically. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how, I'm sure they'll find solution, but I, I can imagine how stressful it can be for, for Japanese people, you know. And who is running this uh it so there's a host city uh tokyo what does that mean in practice who who you know who, who's making decisions about how things go well of course they are they are helped by ioc and then they will be helped by ipc and um, so ioc has also uh, a pool of consultants and experts that uh, are, you know, taking part of the games and helping the organizing committee. So Tokyo is not by itself, you know, organizing the games and, you know, so the, the decisions are taken um, hand by hand um, by IOC and, and by uh, Tokyo 2020 at the same time. But I, I'm sure 
I mean, the the whole situation is so complicated that you know, I they're probably having a hard time. I mean, it's um, and it's it's very complicated as, as well in this very specific context where you have the you know the public in Japan, which is um, in majority against the games. I mean, it's and it's not that common in Japan that the the public is is you know having such a a, a, a very clear opinion on something, you know. So it's it's it's. Um, I mean, it's. I'm I'm pretty sure it's it's not that that easy for Tokyo 2020. Um, and they're doing a great job. So far, so good. It's amazing that uh, you know, w- with all of the extra complexity of the uh, the pandemic that uh, that it's happening now. Um, uh, yeah. So Japan is not a block amorphous uniform culture there's a lot there's a lot of uh, different kinds aspects to japanese culture and uh, I, i'm wondering of course. um what kind of um, organizations are are behind the tokyo olympic is it is it run somehow by the mayor is was a new organization created uh, is it the driven by the sports uh, administration who who's doing the work so basically, whenever uh, a city gets the, the games, uh, an organizing committee is created. So it really depends on every each country, to be honest. But uh, usually, story it starts with very few people, let's say 50 people. And at the very end, I think, can goes up to 2,000, 3,000 persons. I mean, it, it depends on the committee. But I would say what is very specific to Tokyo is like most of the staff were, I mean, are Segundis, and they're mostly coming from uh, Tokyo Metropolitan Government, but also municipalities. And so the majority of them are civil servants, which means the majority of them has never really worked with foreigners. Though Mm. it's, I mean, of course, when you're working for the games, you're mostly working with foreigners, you know, with International Federation, with IOC, and, you know, you have lots of very close contact with foreigners. So I think that was also the, um, what is very specific about Tokyo. Um, for example, the situation in, in Rio 2016, for example, there was lots of people that were recruited to do the job. So because they had like a, a previous experience in major events or previous experience in the Olympic and Paralympic Games. So every organizing committee is different, basically. So, but it's also like, that's something that someone was telling me during a, a training that I was delivering at uh, Paris 2024. I mean, when you are in the country, where a country that is hosting the games, it's not a, a, a if you joining the organizing committee, it's not in terms of career. It's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, once in your life experience, you know, it's a, it's a unique experience, you know? So, um, there, there's lots, I mean, this, this guy working for Paris 2024, he said, this is not for my career, but this is for my life. I mean, I want to be part of this, amazing adventure you know so it's a um it's it's very interesting every every organizing committee has its own culture and this is something that i say in the training that i'm delivering it's like when you're talking about culture 
say the majority of people are thinking about national culture. I'm French. Okay, so I'm French. I'm also many other things. I have, you know, there's lots of subculture, I would say. There's also the, the culture of the region you're coming from because you're, you're a, a female or a male or I'm a trainer. So I have my own specific culture, being a trainer, wanting to understand, asking questions. So you're, you're a many different, you have many, you have one identity, but made of very different things. You know, you're not only French. You have many other things. So currently, all of these um, sporting bodies from around the world, and indeed athletes and, and sponsors and so on, are interfacing with the Japanese civil service largely. Not not only you know not the diplomatic service or uh, an organisation that's comfortable and, and normal with um, working at an international level, but um, you know the, the people in Japan who are least maybe have least exposure to um to to foreign uh, projects and collaborations yeah but there's also secondies working for tokyo 2020 that are working from sponsors for example mm. like big companies so they in their case they were more exposed to foreigners and in the case of the civil servants because they've been working for years now for the organizing committee. I mean, they, they kind of, you know, being more exposed to foreigners, let's say. But in terms of intercultural differences, I would say that there were plenty mm -hmm. at the beginning, yeah. for sure. And I think that's why there was so many, uh, that I really think that that's the one of the legacy of, of, the, mm. of the people, I mean, for the people that worked for the uh, organizing committee is, you know, learning to how to you know interact with foreigners for example i'm sure yeah um let's take a, a step back from uh, paris and tokyo at this point and just think in general terms about uh, olympic and paralympic events um where do intercultural issues come up we've talked in general that was interesting you described the sort of where and the how approach to to looking at um a, a new project or, or task um, but really in, in concrete terms where do you see these issues coming up is it in communications in planning um, you know in in team processes what what keeps you busy in in general between two organizing committee would you say L let's take that as a scenario yes well, I would say, well, like in general, in, in our field, in the intercultural field, time is, is a, can be a major issue um, uh, because, you know, of course, some people wait at the very last minute to, you know, handle things and find solutions to the problem that, we, they, that they have. And I, I, would, I would say that that was the main issue for people working with Rio 2016 is like uh, uh, in Brazil, you have this confidence that, you know, things will sort out. You know? uh, so I would say that time is the biggest challenge probably. And of course, communication in general, the, the style of communication, um, the good thing about, um, I would say Paris and Tokyo is like French people can be quite implicit as well. So, um, we know, you know, how to read between the lines, let's say. So this is something that we have in common. And this is really something that you need 
uh, to work with the Japanese. But it's true as well with with the Brazilian. I would say being able to read between the lines is uh, is is something that you need to master as well. So um, I would say yes. In terms of, I think the biggest challenge would be communication and uh, how how you handling time, basically. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot yeah. of flexibility with the timetable. Things just have to be ready on for that opening ceremony. Yes, but I would say something else is I think very interesting to have a look at is as I said, this is the metaphor that I'm using for IOC, like IOC being the guardian of the Olympic Games, and basically the whole city. Uh, being, you know, uh, the franchisee. Um, the interesting thing is there's lots of concept in the Olympic and Paralympic Games that are um, very common in, the, I would say, the Western cultures. This idea, for example, of unity in diversity is, is a very Western idea. Because in Japan, diversity is not... Um, how can I say? Of course, the world is diverse, but I would say that one of the main value in Japan is harmony. And to remain in harmony, everyone has to be somehow to keep to be conform to the others. So I, I think it was very interesting to see how Japanese people were handling this idea of diversity, though. In reality, in Japan, they don't really value diversity. So I think it's it's interesting to see that some values that we believe that are absolutely universal, but still they're mostly Western ideas, I would say. And um, I'm wondering if if that was um, that clear in the Olympic and Paralympic movement that some idea related to the movement were very very much Western ideas and concept and related to Western philosophy. I, I suspect you're right. Yeah. Um, I, um, I've just got the book um, written by Joseph Henrich. I haven't read it yet, but this is the book. I think it's called The World's Weirdest People. You know, this term weird. What is it? Western, educated, industrialized. What is it? Uh, rich and democratic um, and it's uh, it's kind of investigating how um, ideas about human psychology are very much um, created from uh, doing studies on people who fit that description and that uh, aren't universal for every culture in the world. And I, I I've also been thinking about how much the um, the the Olympic movement represents kind of Western view on how to run an event like this and I had a quick look at the Olympic Charter and it feels very comfortable to me uh, you know as a, as a Westerner but it, it's interesting to hear your comments there about the, the way the Japanese look at diversity where it, it's not it's not a, um, a default position it, that that's um, there's probably quite a lot if I reread that Olympic Charter that um, having read the book uh, on, on weird people that, that, that will feel weird um, so yeah, it's a very interesting observation. Um, but one question for you is, um, and yeah, yes, go ahead. One, one more thing. Hmm. Yeah, just one more thing that I would like to add about that is, um, 
interestingly, um, because I mean, somehow Japan is, uh, as you probably know, and and um, people listening to us today also know, is it's a very hierarchical uh, society. So I would say, and this is my my understanding, and again, that's that's my opinion. Uh, I don't know if it's 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 absolutely true, but this is the the, the understanding that I had of it is IOC own the franchise. So in the sense, IOC is the authority. And because Japan is a very hierarchical uh, society, um, I had the feeling that Tokyo 2020 really wanted to, you know, meet the requirements. And like, for example, um, defending and promoting this idea of uniting diversity, mm. which is really not the way of, you know, Japanese are thinking, but they had to show that they were promoting this idea and they did it without questioning it. Though I believe that if an idea that was in contradiction with the French philosophy, for example, or the French motto or the French idea, I have the thing that French people would be questioning it and asking the IOC, okay, but why? Why do you want that? Why do you believe in this idea? And this does not correspond to us. But in in Japan, I mean, they stick to the requirements without showing, you know, any critic or anything. They just did the the and promote the whole idea of unity and diversity and showing the your difference which is really not a Japanese idea. You should not show you different. So I think the relationship with IOC, for example, and with IPC as well, is also very much related to the national culture of the, I mean, whether the, the, the organizing committee is, you know. So in Japan, of course, they, they were pretty much uh, obeying to what the IOC and IPC was, was requesting. And that, that was one of the critic, the public, Japanese public ad against his, his government saying, you're obeying too much to the IOC. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to, to so. hear uh, the kind of um, public discussion that has been around the uh, Olympics. And I've heard little bits of that, but of course, it's always filtered through uh, the media that I that I'm uh, listening to, to to hear that would be really interesting to get inside that conversation and, and f find out what Japanese people are really thinking and saying about this this um, kind of international circus of uh, of culture that's come to their country. But uh, and yes, um, uh, I wanted to think with you briefly about. Um, uh, how generalizable is the Olympic experience to uh, other kinds of large events and, and large international organizations? Is uh, Are the Olympics kind of just, just another uh, example of cultures coming together uh, to achieve some purpose? Or is there something unique and special about the Olympics that makes it different from other kinds of uh, large international events? Well, I would say that what is so specific about the games is, as I said, because of these uh, universality slots, um, basically you have athletes and delegation from all the countries of the world, basically. Uh, so everyone is represented, though in other major 
sport events, you mostly have always the same kind of countries that are represented. So I think that's one of the things that is very specific to the games. And I would say as well that, I mean, this is, you, everyone remember the games, where they were and where they watch it. So there's something very, uh, I would say, that really reunite everyone in the games. So I would say in the sense, it's, it's quite different. Um, and um, yeah, and it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's, it's at least seven years and lots of people participating and it's, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. You know, and I remember thinking to myself, saying to myself when I was working to Rio 2016, you in your office and something is happening with one of your athletes you're dealing with and you step out of the meeting you had with an international federation or a national committee and you had this conversation. It was just the five of you and the five of us and the day after it's all over in the news. You know, because, you know, the athletes has been dubbed or there was something. So you really feel that you really are under the scrutiny of, you know, the whole world. So that's that's a very specific experience. Very, I guess I would, I mean, it's uh, very specific to the games. Yeah. Absolutely. It is a, a undoubtedly a very special thing that's happening. And that, uh, I feel privileged that you've been uh, so able to share your insights and observations. I, I've been fascinated. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, I know you've got a ton of things to do. You are there um, in Senegal, um, you know, giving me a, a slot of your afternoon. So um, a huge thank you for that. But I'm not going to let you go before we do a couple of things. You, you probably know that this is going to happen. I'm going to ask you, and yes, what is your contribution to the intercultural toolbox? Well, I think, um, first of all, I would like to share something about... Um, Actually, it's it's somehow related to the experience I just had with Paris 2024, but this happened a lot to me in the different training that I delivered. When it comes to delivering country-specific training, it happens that sometimes you have sceptical participants saying, well, you know, that they believe that this is a, for example, why learning about Japan in about two months from now, it, the project will be done. I mean, the games will be over and I don't need, you know, to learn that much about Japan. And I don't, you know, I have many other things to do right now. And I think to win other sceptical participants, participating to country specific training, I always say that actually when whenever you attending uh, intercultural training about a specific country, there's a lot to learn about the country, but there's even more to learn about yourself. Because when someone is telling you, for example, um, oh, Jap Japan is, uh, the communication in Japan, it's mostly uh, implicit, you know. It's always interesting to ask yourself, and what about me? How am I communicating? Am I able to read between the lines? And this will help your participant not only to work with Japanese, but basically with anyone, even with another French person, which is maybe more implicit than she is or he is. So 
I, I will I'll always take a few minutes to help people to understand that even though they're not particularly interested in the country, um, what they have to learn from that training is also pretty much about themselves and to raise their awareness about how they're handling and how they're communicating in general. So that would be um, something that I would like to share with you today. And um, maybe something, um, sorry, there's a little bit of noise um, because to, we currently in Senegal, it's a, it's a big festival, it's called Tabaski. And it's uh, so there are lots of lots of people meeting, and so lots of people in the streets. And you're giving us um, the flavor of Africa. It's quite like it's been it's been brilliant. We've exactly, heard we've heard some exactly. of the wildlife actually as well, not only the culture but also the uh, <laughs> the, the animal life. But uh, sorry, I interrupted. You you were going to say um... no, no, not at all. And um, one one thing that I would like to share with uh, with people listening to us today is. What give what can give you energy and inspiration? I would say like the one of the positive aspects of the pandemic. There's lots of negative aspects. One of them, one of the positive one, is we are able to work remotely, basically from anywhere we want. And I think that uh, we should take the opportunity when it's you know of course possible because when you have families and kids, sometimes it might be difficult to just, you know, travel and go and work from elsewhere. But um, there's more and more digital nomads, as, as we call them. And um, there's a, a, a website that I would like to recommend. It's called nomadlist.com. And basically, they rate uh, every city uh, in terms of, of uh, the cost of living and the internet and you know, the security and everything so that you can pick a, a place where you would like to work from. Because I think as an interculturalist, it's always good to, you know, um, go and even for a short period of time, and it's my case, I'm, I'm only staying two months in Senegal, but I, it's one thing to be exposed to a culture, as I said previously, and I, I worked for two years with the 54 African countries, but it's a very different story to live in the country. So uh, this is what I'm doing right now, living two months in, in Senegal. And I think this has, to, we have to take advantage of the positive aspects of the pandemic between working, being able to work remotely. So I, I strongly recommend that website, Nomad List, if you want, you know, to experience living in a country in a very different culture just to experience and continue to learn and and you know being lost in translation as an interculturalist i think we should you know continue to have this experience of you know being lost in a new culture so that would be my advice for today what a brilliant idea i just went to go uh, no go nomad is, uh, is what you see when you get to the website the website is nomadlist.com uh, a community of 27,964 remote workers and no doubt growing all the time because it sounds like a fabulous resource. So thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, the whole thing makes sense now, the uh, the, the wildlife and, and your location and your connection. You're, you're still involved in all of your projects um, back here in Europe and in Asia. Exactly. And, uh, 
uh, yeah, it just shows what what's possible now, and and, and how uh, how important it is to keep those intercultural juices flowing and the the experiences fresh. So um, uh, this has been fabulous for me. And yes, if um, people want to get in touch with you, uh, you, you've got so much to share about um, this kind of uh, topic for for large international events. Uh, it, you know, there are probably many questions. Uh, in people's minds. I think we've answered a lot, but there are many, many more things we could have talked about today. How do people get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach you? Um, well, I, I guess you'll share with uh, with uh, people my my email address. Okay. And uh, so I'm I'm absolutely available if you have any more specific question. If you're curious about the games, uh, I'll I'll be happy to to answer um the the question that people might have yeah yeah if you're happy we'll put your email address on um on the intercultural toolbox um uh, page for for this episode and for uh, for you um and yes again it, it's been brilliant uh, thank you so much for um for everything today and i wish you um a, f- a fabulous two months in Senegal and, and a happy return to, to Paris um, when that happens. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for your invitation, Richard. Thanks.